This is the Shift Podcast. course of the next few hours, it's possible that, again, the world changes forever. And I wanted to take a bit of a tour around the world and get perspective on that. We've heard an awful lot of people saying, we should do more, we should do less, we should be there, we should not be there. So we're going to find some of that insight here on the shift tonight. And I look forward to sharing some connections we have. We're going to Ukraine more than once, going to Japan, we're going to London, England. And I look forward to sharing more of this conversation uh, with you shortly. Our first guest is here already to get started. And our first guest uh, brings us incredibly unique perspective that we would never thought we would. Uh, Dwayne Bratt, how are you? I'm doing very fine, Shane. Uh, Dwayne Bratt uh, is a professor at the Mount Royal University in Calgary, and he's a political scientist. And so that in itself lends to his expertise of what we're going through here in this conversation tonight. So this is perfect uh, for that. Now, Dwayne, incidentally, was in Berlin when this all unfolded. Now, Dwayne, you've just literally come back and landed in Canada. You, um, How does it feel to land in Canada this time? It, it feels very different uh, than, than the place I left uh, only a week ago. Um, you know, going into the, to the heart of Europe, and just seeing the response of the European people uh, to to the events in in Ukraine, to the biggest military operation that's been on that continent in eighty years, um, is uh, is quite remarkable. In shows of support, um, different. Uh, venues and landmarks around the world are lighting their colors up in blue and gold in a show of support for Ukraine. The Brandenburg Gate in Berlin lit up blue and gold. Now, you were just in Berlin, Dwayne. Yeah. So can you help me understand, because I know you had shared some conversation with me a couple of days ago about you know getting around the embassy and how things change so quickly. Can you try to paint a picture for us of your time in Berlin and what the tone was like? So... if. <laughs> Uh, I posted a bunch of the photos and, and video uh, that we took when we were down at the Brandenburg Gate because we were initially there just after Putin uh, announced uh, the recognition of the Donbass uh, breakaway region in, in eastern Ukraine. And the Russian embassy is half a kilometer from the Brandenburg Gate. And as we're walking there, you could already see protesters showing up to the to the Russian uh, embassy with with a couple police guards, you know, protecting them. And <laughs> the Germans, being uh, polite people, they they protested across the street like they're supposed to. That all changed when the full invasion of Ukraine came. Uh, now there was a thousand people um, on a, on a Friday workday. Uh, protesting outside the uh, the Russian, basically the entire blocks from the Brandenburg Gate to the Russian embassy were filled with anti-Putin protesters. Uh, so they had to mill out into the street, but you can't drive in the street anymore. Um, much heavier police presence, including with dogs, to protect the uh, the Russian embassy. And I think that shows the the escalation in, in the use of uh, of force. Um, Kiev is uh, basically the distance between Calgary and Vancouver is uh, Berlin to Kiev. Um, and so um, the Thursday, so this is, uh, I'm starting to lose track of the days, but the day well, before the invasion. Foggy yeah, with the, so many days and time zones, yeah, isn't it? The, the day before um, the full invasion of, of Ukraine, we were doing regular tourist stuff, and uh, my my son and my my daughter-in-law. My daughter-in-law works for the German Foreign Ministry. Uh, she's a German national, 
we did the uh, the wall memorial and uh, talked about the divisions of East and West Berlin. And then, um, you know, it ends, of course, with the celebration of the wall coming down. And Jesse's parents lived in Berlin in 1989 and they went down to the to the bring down the wall party in november of 1989 and that is the symbolic end of the cold war you know that is seen as this long period of world war one and world war two and napoleonic wars and the cold war and that things were going to change after that and here we are you know 30 years later and there is a major war breaking out uh, in, in Europe, a clear act of aggression. There is no neutrality there. There's no both sides there. And you can see that not just in the protests that are strung up in, in Berlin and strung up across Germany and sprung up across Western Europe, but within Russia itself. Um, you've probably seen video footage of police in, in Moscow, um, you know, arresting people in St. Petersburg and Moscow and, and 40 other uh, Russian cities. This is, as they say, not a war of Russian aggression. This is a war of, of Putin aggression. And now, as we're speaking live, there is fighting in Kiev. Yeah, that is the update, uh, was the troops. There actually is an update that came specifically from um, Ukraine that um, I'll take your cue right there to give that update uh, that's come out. It's just a couple of quick lines here that I can um, I can read. This is as of 7 o'clock in the morning Ukraine time, which is about an hour or so ago. Uh, Ukraine troops have been trying to push back Russian attacks, uh, repelling Russian forces in uh, Major City Avenue in uh, Kiev. Ukrainian armed forces in a Facebook post, heavy battles in the streets. Um, there's also the yeah, warning. There's warnings that they were trying to storm Kiev, the Russians. 50 explosions, heavy machine gun fire reported um, over the course of the evening. And, um, and now they are starting to report, at least Ukraine is starting to report casualties of what they, have, they believe they've taken down, which is a, a staggering number that they're claiming they've taken down from Russians upwards of 3,500 so far. So those are the updates. Dwayne Bratt with Mount Royal University, political scientist, uh, just returned from Berlin. Literally and just again, to, to, for, for the listeners out there to get a sense of the geography, Kiev is um, about a four-hour drive from Belarus, um, and Russian troops are coming in from Belarus. It's on the west side of Ukraine. And where the Russian speakers, where Putin is claiming the, the repression of, of, of Russians is all on the east side. That's previously where the fighting had been in 2014. This is not like the annexation of Crimea on the Black Sea or the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine. This is an attempt at taking over all of Ukraine, the largest country in Europe, 41 million people. Um, this is not a minor incursion. So, Dwayne, let's talk about that with your political science background. This is where you're the expert, to be honest. I'm so far out of my lane, I don't even know what to ask you. Politically now, when you see what is likely going to happen, is that the uh, leader of Ukraine is probably going to get moved or arrested, taken away, and they're going to most likely put in some sort of puppet uh, to run the country in the meantime and try to take over the military. So from the political science perspective, what do you see here? I mean, that's that's a, obviously a worst-case scenario. Let's see the sort of uh, fight that the Ukrainians uh, can put up because it's not like they have not been expecting this, um, you know, after the uh, the annexation of Crimea back in 2014. Um, the, the question is, they just can't match firepower for firepower with, with Russia. They are going to need NATO support. Um, there is a large NATO contingent in, in Latvia. Um, Latvia is a, is a NATO country. Ukraine is not a NATO country. Uh, but something like NATO air support, uh, to, uh, because right now Russia has pretty close to air superiority uh, over Ukraine, NATO would balance that out. Uh, that would, but that would be a major escalation then of bringing in NATO military forces. Uh, against Russia, um, given that, you know, 
throughout the Cold War, you never saw direct confrontation between NATO and Russia. You saw, you know, a lot of posturing and you saw proxy wars outside of Europe, uh, but you wouldn't, you never saw the potential of direct uh, military clashes. And so even if uh, NATO decided to do that, um, you know, there, there are risks at that. But quite frankly, Putin doesn't look the same. He looks, uh, you know, it, it's it, it's often said, you know, um, in times of war, you know, you're unhinged or something. But this isn't the, when you look at the the uh, the videos he's given. This isn't the cool, collected, rational man of of five or six years ago. Um, and now you're seeing, of course, major major protests. Uh, throughout Russia, I mean, he's convinced the Russian people, you know, that they are going into to liberate Ukraine from Nazis. I mean, that's the words he was using in his TV address to the Russian people. Well, Russian media is greatly censored, but there's still enough that is getting into the country, and they realize if if they were going to liberate Ukraine, why is Ukraine fighting back? You know, so uh, the economic a, damage, the, one of the other challenges, of course, is is the heavy dependency, particularly on Germany, of Russian gas. Yeah. And uh, what are the consequences there? Um, so you look just on something like the, uh, the SWIFT uh, International uh, Transactions Agreement uh, and calls for Russia to be removed from that. The G7 can't even agree on that, let alone the European Union. And, and the opposition is coming from primarily Germany, uh, Chancellor Scholz, uh, as well as the, the, the Italians. Um, the British and the Canadians uh, are taking the strongest stand on that. Uh, and in fact, uh, just before we went on the air, I saw um, that Canada had personally placed sanctions on Vladimir Putin himself. Yeah. Uh, something that we had resisted in in the past. And bear in mind, the Deputy Prime Minister, Christia Freeland, um, is of Ukrainian ancestry. She speaks in Ukraine. She worked in Russia. She's currently persona non grata in Russia. She is banned from entering the country. But she can speak Russian. She can speak Ukraine. Um, she, in fact, was being spied upon by the KGB in the late 1980s before Ukrainian independence because they saw her as a foreign rabble rouser. So that gives us a, a degree of insight uh, into conditions on the ground, not just, you know, that because she's from Ukraine, uh, but because she actually worked in Moscow and saw the rise of, of Vladimir Putin. But we're, we don't have the same degree of economic dependency uh, as uh, as the Germans do. And, and Germany is the most powerful country on the continent. Does that expose, like, is this this the kind of stuff that exposes weakness in a country? And I don't necessarily mean Ukraine or, or Canada even, well, maybe Canada. So uh, what I see here is when we talk about oil and gas and all these different conversations, Dwayne, these other governments start to get exposed in the global economy theory and not so independent and able to provide for their people. So there is seems to be a, a very big political trickle-down effect on on some of these leaders to sort of save face and, and either not get involved or get involved or, or change the way they're doing business because it seems to have exposed an awful lot of countries already that have real problems on their hands uh, if, if the oil and gas gets cut off or what these sanctions turn into. Yeah, it, it's a German issue. There are way too many people in Canada trying to politicize this by saying, you know, if the Keystone Pipeline had been built, this wouldn't be happening. That, uh, to use a uh, um, uh, a very technical political science term, is a bunch of crap. Um, you know, they they have no. They are basically projecting their own agenda onto uh, uh, an international tragedy. Yes, we do. There is some small imports of, of Russian uh, oil into uh, Canada. It's very complicated why that happens. And yes, in, under these circumstances, we should be ending that. But this issue is not about the oil and gas dependency of North America. Uh, gas in particular is a very regional item. 
And uh, it's not just Germany, it's Poland, it's a whole bunch of other countries. Russia is a very gas-rich country. I mean, Gazprom is is a massive uh, company. And what are the consequences uh, for energy security, but also the cost of all other goods? So these are the, the, this is how it had built up. Because they, they thought that, yes, you know, Putin had done some evil things in his own country. They never imagined that he would go to this extent uh, in, in Ukraine. And now you've created this dependency, which is why he thinks he can get away with this. Uh, I don't think he will. Uh, I, 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 I think when this is all said and done, you know, Zelensky may still be standing and, and Putin is not. Because yeah, Zelensky's well, that got is... the support of the world. Zelensky's got support of his own people. I don't think Putin does. Well, that is one of the uh, speculations that has been tossed about, is that the wrong leader might get uh, lose his job through all this. Dwayne Bratt is a political science professor uh, at the Mount Royal University in Calgary, just landed from Berlin. Um, Dwayne, I can't help but ask you, um, as I know that you do so much, um, if you could just share your favorite thing about being Canadian in this, because I'm sure that's become very present to you as you land back in Canada on Friday. So it was, uh, my, my son is a Canadian citizen. He's very politically active in Canada before he, he met his wife. And so prior to the invasion, we were talking about the events in, in Ottawa and the Emergencies Act and all of the debate and discussion, I'm sure that occurred on your show over that. It looks so minor. It looks so petty when you see what real tragedy, real conflict, real loss of freedom looks like. Very well said. Dwayne Brad, thanks for jumping on with us here on the shift. Um, jet lagged and time zone weirded all out. Yeah, I'm, really I'm, I'm, I probably don't sound as good as I, I normally should. Yeah, uh, you always my, sound my handsome. Apologies to your listeners. No, you sound fantastic. Thanks for being here, Dwayne. Appreciate it. Okay. Thanks, Shane. This is the Shift Podcast. As we take a bit of a tour around the world and try to get some different perspective on what is happening in Ukraine, our next guest joins us from Ukraine. Stepan Burko is an advocacy manager with the Dijur uh, Foundation. Uh, Stepan, are you with me? Yes, I am. Can you help us understand where you are right now? Uh, I am in Lviv. And uh, is everything safe? Yeah, is everything safe where uh, you are right now? Or less. uh, There are uh, air defense uh, alerts sometime, from time to time. Uh, We we were waiting for an hour in our basement uh, just this morning. Uh, mm-hmm. But in Lviv, comparing to Kiev, everything is more or less fine. Many people are arriving from uh, Kiev, central Ukraine, eastern Ukraine, by trains. And uh, right now we're trying to find uh, a possibility to to host all of them. It must be mixed emotion for you, Stepan, to uh, be here as an advocate for people and democracy when you see this unfolding in front of you um i can only imagine um what this this must look like for you so i just want to open up the invitation as you i'm assuming are with your family and trying to keep your family safe um what what does what does the morning look like for you as you try to take a stand for democracy but at the same time there you are protecting uh your family with you at the same time. What does this morning look like as the sun comes up in Lviv? Uh, to tell you the truth, this morning uh, we are more, uh, much more calm because I think the first stress of the first hours uh, of, of the war, um, it, this was uh, really, really, uh, you know, something I would not uh, wish anyone to experience. But uh, the news from the front lines are coming that our soldiers are holding and that they are uh, basically you know keeping keeping the lines of course there are losses of course there are losses of land and people but uh, that the russians they didn't uh, get 
to uh, complete their plan as they expected. Uh, for two days, they were trying to convert the case, but uh, uh, they, they didn't manage to do it. They were trying to land uh, uh, soldiers on two uh, airports, and uh, they, they were trying to send Marines or whatever there. And uh, just the news from this morning, both of these operations uh, didn't uh, weren't successful. All of the enemies were destroyed. So these news, they encourage, you know, civilian people to help the army and uh, protect themselves while the, the army is, is, is fighting the enemy. How are you getting your news right now, Stepan? I mean, if you're in Lviv, that means you're west, if I, my geography is correct, you're west of Kiev yes. and not too far from the border to Poland. Um, where's the info coming from? Oh, Internet is working all right. Uh, so there are lots of Twitter accounts and Facebook and friends. So the, the f- phone uh, connection is okay, cellular. So basically there is no problem with, uh, with the information. Radio works and there is a really good uh, information, com- uh, information campaign uh, organized by the government. So basically all the TV channels and radio channels, they're broadcasting one single uh, uh, information and they, there is uh, one single information hub in the parliament. So I would say that uh, this uh, media reaction and media uh, uh, efforts by the government uh, are really good. Uh, tell me about the government. I mean, democracy and, you know, uh, politics, not politics, but the experience of government uh, in your professional work is a big part of, of what's going on. So tell me what you see with your government right now from the perspective of a Ukrainian uh, looking at what your president is doing and, and what's happening in your country, what do you see? I see full uh, unite that uh, all all the political all the political parties, all the political stakeholders are connected. So opposition and government are together. The government, the parliament, the president are as one. And um, I mean, of course, during the uh, martial law. And, uh, you know, the war, uh, the executive government, the president and the government are, uh, you know, uh, they, they have much more power. But it's really good that the parliament is working and the, the MPs are ready to adopt any legislation that is needed to support the army. And uh, this, uh, this information encourages people and uh, keeps them, you know, if people feel safe because they know that their, their leaders are with them. Uh, just this morning, there was information that uh, the U.S. Um, they suggested or proposed uh, our president to be uh, evacuated from Kiev, and he uh, responded that he doesn't want to uh, be evacuated because he's standing with his people. He has uh, uh, he's posting videos uh, on Twitter uh, every few hours from his uh, office, so people can see that. The president is with his country and with his nation in Kiev, in, in, on the battlegrounds, let's say it like that. And this encourages us to, to feel that our uh, armed forces and our people will defeat the enemy. But that quote that he of made course, was quite remarkable. It doesn't work in, in, you know, during war. But the fact that institutions, democratic institutions, are united, this... Uh, encourages us to believe that after the war ends, we will come back to the democratic uh, way of governing to the uh, uh, checks and balances system. So that quote from your uh, president, Zelensky, was quite remarkable when he said, um, when he was offered that uh, the military, the American military would uh, come and, and get him out if he needed to. Um, at the same time, he said, we need ammunition, I don't need a ride, which I think is... Um, a quite remarkable, uh, remarkably confident thing to say. I, I quite admire uh, that part. Um, my guest right now is joining me from Ukraine. Um, he is in Lviv, and I hope I'm saying that right. Please feel free to correct me. Stepan Burko uh, is with an organization called the Jure Foundation, um, an advocacy manager. Now, my understanding from your role professionally, uh, Stepan, is that you know you advocate for people. In all of this, it must be um, amazing from your lens to see all of these people that you advocate for and work hard for to unite as a nation 
when in the past they might have been divided on other topics. And yet here they are under dreadful reasons, um, unprovoked dreadful reasons, I would say. And yet they are uniting as a country. That must be remarkable for you to see from your professional career. Yeah, of course, but this is not the first time we experienced this kind of, uh, you know, unity of people. We, just eight years ago, we experienced uh, the revolution of dignity. And the threat was not as uh, uh, high as now because we were only feeling the threat uh, uh, in Kiev. But, you know, Kiev was on fire and other cities were on fire. Uh, and, and And we succeeded. So this is not uh, anything new. Right now, we are even more united. We are stronger. So basically, uh, I, I'm not surprised by this reaction of our nation. And so we, we were expecting this to happen. Of course, we're not thinking that this will be on that high of scale. We actually, what people here were thinking, that if the uh, aggression would start, it would start somewhere in Donbass. Uh, but obviously not everywhere, because we experienced rocket strikes everywhere in every single uh, big city, uh, regional center in, in Ukraine, even in Western Ukraine, because uh, Russian rockets are flying far. Um, yeah, and I, I wanted to add uh, to to our president's quote. Uh, uh, yeah, we our president said he doesn't need a ride, he needs uh ammunition and it's true and to tell you the truth ukrainian people uh, i wouldn't say they are frustrated with the level of support from nato but uh, the fact that some countries are still denying um you know cutting russia off from any any western or international uh, communication and banking system for example swift there are still countries that don't think that russia did enough to get punished by uh, cut, being cut uh, from SWIFT. Uh, we are thankful for the ammunition that is uh, already sent to Ukraine. But um, what people are saying is that if, if Ukraine falls, uh, European countries from Central Europe and Eastern Europe will be next. Even though that they are uh, part of NATO, Russia will never stop because if you have heard what uh, President, Russian President Putin was saying during his speech before the start of the war. This is just the uh, same things that uh, I know this may, this may sound, crazy, sound crazy, but this is something very uh, that resembles Hitler's speech, speeches before World War II. And uh, when, when the, the president of a country doesn't recognize the right of another nation to be, you know, a different nation or some, uh, you know, when the president is saying that there are some lands that belong to us and we don't recognize the borders of the countries. Uh, and we, we uh, Ukrainians are saying that if we are not united together, all the democratic world, and if we don't uh, fight uh, against Putin now in Ukraine, this will come to your country. And this may sound, I, I, I can understand that this kind of information can be, you know, can sound very distant to citizens of uh, uh, Canada or any NATO country. But uh, this is the same thing that happened with us. We didn't believe that Putin could send rockets to our cities, but he did. And uh, it is very important to unite together all the democratic countries and have a single united answer uh, military answer to what Putin is doing. Let me ask you this, Stepan. Does this lack of action change your opinion at all of NATO or of uh, the Western countries in general? Uh, no, I mean, I had no, uh, you know, I didn't have high expectations. I knew that this will be like that. I knew that uh, leaders of NATO countries will not be as fast to react to what Putin is doing. And, I, and obviously, they don't want to uh, engage themselves in any military actions with uh, Russia directly. Uh, but, I mean, we have no illusions. But, uh, I mean, this is our country. We will def- defend it to, to, to the last, you know, uh, person. But uh, this is not only about Ukraine. It's also about democracies. When leaders of your countries are saying that they have values and they will stand for values, you know, fighting alongside uh, Ukraine is defending values. 
you know, saying that the, we are defending values and at the same time refusing to cut off, uh, Russia from SWIFT uh, or helping us, uh, you know, making Ukraine a no-fly zone, this is just, uh, you know, uh, like a double standard. That's mm-hmm. what people are saying. I mean, uh, I, I support these ideas because uh, it's either you help us and democracy stands, and this is democracy is a value that is uh, really important for your, your societies. You have to help democratic states. Uh, Stepan joins us from Lviv in uh, Ukraine right now. Now, Stepan, we hear uh, quietly in the background voices of young people. Are you a dad? Yes, yes. This is this was my three-year-old son and the daughter of our friend. She's a three-year-old. Can you tell us their first names just so we can know uh, who that is in the background? Would that be yeah, okay? Yeah, that was Martin and Bohdanka. Well, uh, Stepan, I imagine... Um, as you look at those babies and you look at the future of Ukraine, uh, you're left with uh, a fair bit, a fair bit to think about and to consider. And um, we only have a few seconds left here, and I wish we had endless amount of time because it, it, there's so much that I'm learning. I'm learning so much about Europe and from about your country in the last few days. It makes me wonder why I didn't learn it sooner. I can tell you that much. What do you want Canadians to know for a final word here, Stepan, uh, before we let you go from Ukraine? What do you want Canadians to know? Uh, I want Canadians to know that we will fight for our country, you know, no matter what. And uh, we are strong. So people will fight, but we need ammunition and we need uh, more military help from your country and other NATO countries. I would kindly ask all Canadians and all uh, NATO uh, societies to organize like a public pressure to your leaders to support us more. Uh, if, uh, because what we see is that leaders of Western countries, they're hesitant. They don't know, you know, they have to feel that their actions are supported by their uh, nations. If people on the streets or if, if you write to your representative in parliament, do you support more help to Ukraine, more military help to Ukraine? They will not be that hesitant to help us. So I, I kindly ask you all to direct these thoughts and these ideas to your representatives, to your leaders of your nations, so then they will not be hesitant to help us militarily. Uh, Stepan Berko, I would like to acknowledge um, your peaceful your peaceful heart. I don't know if you're doing a really good job hiding it or um, if you are just this peaceful in your heart this morning as you start a new day in Ukraine. Um, but I can feel there's a calmness about you uh, that you are sharing with me, even though we are over uh, the phone and the radio from so far away. Thank you for being so generous with your time, and I wish you the best. Thank you. Thank you. This is the Shift Podcast. I'm Shane Hewitt. Thank you for being with us on this weekend edition of the Shift, taking a look from around the world at what has been going on in Ukraine. And I felt it curious to have conversation uh, from a place uh, that we connect with every week and a friend that we have in common. Uh, our guest here is a journalist from Tokyo. She's a Kiwi. Her name is Matoko Kakubayashi. I think I got that right. Matoko, I've been practicing and practicing through the course of the evening. How did I do? That sounds perfect, Shane. Wonderful. Well, thank you for making time. I know you had to move a bunch of family stuff around to be here with us on the shift. And you come highly recommended for conversation with one of our family members, Sir Christopher Gilbert. Um, and I appreciate you being here. How are you doing in Japan uh, with everything that's going on from the look into Ukraine? Um, it's well, we're, we're quite far away from Ukraine. So obviously things uh, are as business as usual. Um, but of course, um, as soon as the news came in, it's been just that's what you see everywhere on newspapers and on the TV, and social media. I think the first reaction, the first reaction I heard was from not from Tokyo, but it was actually from Hiroshima, which as you know, is um, the city that was uh, bombed by the atomic atomic bomb in 1945 and so the community there they have a very strong community that is against any kind of world war 
there very strongly against nuclear weapons. And the fact that um, Putin, Vladimir Putin was here um, talking about um, threatening other countries with nuclear weapons um, really got them um, angry. They're, they were one of the uh, first response saying that they uh, are very uh, hurt. They are very hurt that someone can lightly use nuclear weapons as a threat. And um, some of the people in the community who have actually li who lived through the atomic bombings, they said they were actually very sad because they've spent the last decades going around the world, going to places even in Russia and Ukraine, talking about their experience um, going through the atomic bomb. Um, which even I, as a little girl, I remember hearing some stories. And there are things that you just don't, um, there, there are some stories that you don't um, forget. Um, the fact that you see people just um, having this, their flesh kind of um, burnt off in, in, a, in, a, in a split second, people asking for water, but of course they can't, there is no water because all the water is instantly contaminated and just the helplessness of it all. And uh, the community in Hiroshima is obviously, they're very, very sad that um, the, the, that there is a slight possibility that this might reoccur again in history. So you are presented with an incredible look here, um, Matoko, because uh, you are a Kiwi and you live in Tokyo and that's where you make your home. So try to, you know, double dip, I suppose, because I'm sure that your conversation with your family here and your family there gives you some unique perspective in both countries. Uh, what are you seeing? Let's start with Japan first. You say that it's in the news and it's everywhere. Is it the, the you know, the thing that are, are the Japanese people? Uh, talking about this and, and worried about what's going on, is it the conversation? Um, I think they're. Uh, I think at the moment they're more worried about the. Uh, they've been focusing on the Ukrainian uh, people living in Japan. There's not many of them, but there are a small um, group of them living dotted about the country, and they've been holding um, demonstrations in uh, Shibuya, which is a very, very um, public, very central place in Tokyo. Um, this was yesterday. They've been holding another rally today. Um, voicing their anger and uh, basically just saying that they are opposed to any sort of war. Um, in terms of what I've been hearing in the Japanese population, uh, what's actually come up is um, what surprised me was how fast the uh, Japanese prime minister was to uh, condemn um, the actions of Russia. And I found that surprising because the Japanese government, or at least the Japanese government that I know that has been in power for the last few years um, right now has been quite generous towards Russia. Um, the current Prime Minister, Fumio Kishida, he was um, his, I guess, his mentor, Shinzo Abe, um, who was our previous Prime Minister um, a few years ago, was, was very generous towards Putin. In fact, I remember about five years ago when Putin came to Japan, they, they let him stay in a very lavish hotel. There was a huge banquet and um, they were just being so nice to him. And th that is kind of my view of how, um, th that was kind of my view of how Japan treated Russia is. And they welcomed them. They're, they are very close neighbors. But, and so um, the fact that, um, they can, that the prime minister was so quick to condemn was, was rather surprising. Um, the other thing that it's um, sparked is the story about what's going to happen with um, the uh, Northern Territories, which are a chain of islands which Russia and Japan are uh, kind of fighting over who, who owns them. And um, I think the events of the last two days have kind of shown the Japanese people that um, literally um, Putin is not going to give these islands up. Well, that must change the perspective, right? Because that's been going on for a long time and it's been sort of simmering in the background about that chain of islands and Japan is sort of, you know, it's not really resolved and yeah, they'll probably just negotiate their way through it. That must really change perspective. And the reason why I ask that is because when Crimea was annexed by Russia, there wasn't a big, at least show of support diplomatically from Japan back then to say that this is this is wrong. So when they came out this time so adamant about it, uh, saying that this is not okay with Ukraine, that must, it, like, it seems to be a big shift in the way uh, Japan is looking at this in, in general. Um, I agree. And um, I, the Prime Minister has been very kind of hush-hush about why he's 
um, why he's he's done this. And in fact, he's um, chosen to not comment about the uh, disputed islands um, as of yet. So I really can't um, say what um, his kind of motive was. But um, I think, in a sense, it's uh, I am a bit optimistic that perhaps Japan is kind of waking up and and thinking that um, they need to take a, a stronger stand internationally. South of the equator, uh, your other home, uh, conversation with family and friends, very similar to what you're hearing in Japan, just with a New Zealand lens? Um, yes, um, although probably less because um, I, um, unlike it in Japan, I have I do have uh, one, two, a few friends who are um, in the Scandinavia. They're from, I have a few friends in Estonia um, that I know here in Tokyo. And they're very worried about their friends um, over back home. Um, I don't have I don't have anyone like that back home in New Zealand, and I think New Zealand is also quite more distant. So again, they're very worried about what's happening, but then again, it's it's quite it's quite far away that it's um, kind of a conversation to um, bring up other than COVID. Well, and the COVID conversation in New Zealand has been such a different one in general, as Chris has shared with us, as with Chris Gilbert, that we we share that in common, um, that that friend in common. Uh, he's been quite <laughs> quite clear of his opinion of how COVID's been dealt with in, in New Zealand. So it did make me curious to see how perhaps international relations from the New Zealand perspective uh, were going. Uh, I don't know, your your home country makes me very curious, I have to admit. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, oh, no, it's man. interesting, but it has hasn't. I, I have to say, it hasn't been easy. I mean, um, New Zealand's often um, lauded as one of the uh, great examples of um, really hammering down hard on COVID very early on, which which has been great. But um, I mean, the the the, uh, the truth is, is that two years later, I haven't seen my family. Um, I've had a baby, and um, during COVID, and none of my family have been able to come to, uh, to see him. So it's it's mm-hmm. starting to just. Um, be a little bit of a um, be a little bit more. Well, how much longer do we have to wait? Well, congratulations on the baby. Um, it does get uh, it, it does get better, and sleep does come. Not for a long time, <laughs> but it does come. I, I will admit. <laughs> I also feel like I need to apologize for Chris Gilbert to you, just so you know. I feel like somehow deeply woven in my fiber, I need to apologize to you, Matoko, for uh, for something that I'm sure Chris has done. <laughs> Um, well, the thing is, is that I actually haven't met Chris since he oh, really? moved back to Tokyo because, well, no, because um, we've just been in this pandemic. So every time That's we're like, right. oh, let's catch up for coffee, the um, you know, right. we get a spike in, in cases like, oh, well, well, we'll, we'll exchange another email. <laughs> yeah, he did. T- actually, you know what? Now that you say that, he did tell me that, that he has been, hasn't been able to connect and, and how wild that is. Well, you know, it's such interesting um, look around the world. Uh, to see. And in our conversation earlier, we have a, a friend of the shift who is from Calgary, where I broadcast from, and who just came back from Berlin and was in Berlin and sharing um, that particular um, view of being in Berlin when all this happened and being by the embassy and seeing all these pieces sort of unfold in front of him. Um, before I let you go, Matoko, I wanted to play this clip. And Sheldon, I, I hope it comes across okay. I'm just going to play it from over here. Uh, we had a guest from Ukraine, from Lviv, uh, who had shared, um, who had shared, I asked him, what would you ask of Canadians? And just very quickly here, uh, get to this. This was his response. I want Canadians to know that we will fight for our country, you know, no matter what. And uh, we are strong. So people will fight. But we need ammunition and we need uh, more military help from your country and other NATO countries. I would kindly ask all Canadians, I kindly ask you all to direct these thoughts and these ideas to your representatives, to your leaders of your nations, so then they will not be hesitant to help us militarily. And you know, Matoko, the, the thing that I take the most from that particular piece of audio is that's a gentleman who is in Lviv, his country has uh, been taken to war, and you can hear children playing in the background. That's mind-blowing to me. That certainly is. Um, I remember um, during, uh, well, I don't, but uh, my, my father was um, a young boy during World War Two, and um, he was five when uh, Japan surrendered. Um, 
back in 1945. And what I remember vividly about my dad talking about that war was that even though he had absolutely no, um, nothing to do with war, he had nothing to, it didn't really affect him in any way in his job. He just felt a great weight put off his shoulders, he said at that moment when my grandmother said that the war is over. And I just, I just kind of, even though uh, when I heard that, and I still think about that now, it's just how much stress how much um of a burden this uh, this puts on not only the adults but just everyone really so um i've been so i'll be watching this um these events um very closely from tokyo japan uh matoko kakubayashi joins us uh with refer a reference from our friend sir christopher gilbert it's very nice to meet you thank you for being here i look forward to bringing you back on and getting to know you a little bit more and thank you for being so generous with your time matoko i appreciate it Thank you, Shane. This is the Shift Podcast. So let's go across to Ukraine and welcome in our next guest. Our next guest joins us here uh, to chat. Uh, his name is Michaelo, and he is uh, normally with work doing all kinds of legal education and judicial reform. Uh, Michaelo Zernikov is here on the shift. Hi, Michaelo. Thanks for being so patient with us tonight. Uh, yeah, hi. Uh, thanks for having me. So, Michaelo, can you help us understand where you are in Ukraine right now? Well, I, I wouldn't like to um, disclose my exact location right now for security reasons. Can you tell uh, me the city, in the, west, in the western part. Uh, the western part. It's, it's the western part of Ukraine. It's Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Wonderful. Well, thank you for that. And I appreciate your privacy on that. Are you okay? Are you in a safe place right now? Well, relatively safe. I don't know. Uh, can places be safe when there's bombings and challenges and, and, and everything? But I mean, here in the Western Ukraine, it's, it's uh, um, of course, it's safer than uh, it is, you know, in Kiev or, or other places when there's a very active fighting happening right now. Uh, yeah, that. Yeah. And of course, it's, uh, you know, one of the reasons why. why I, why I didn't want, it's quieter, definitely. But one of the reasons why I didn't want to disclose my <clears throat> exact location, sorry, uh, is, uh, you know, Russia is, is um, making lists of people, activists, uh, human rights defenders, and others who, uh, people who have worked with, you know, with the U.S. and, uh, and the West, so that they want to uh, essentially eliminate and, uh, and assassinate. So that is, that's one of the security concerns also. It's another one uh, that, that the people are, you know, concerned about. Uh, so, yeah, um, that. Well, I can hear that it weighs heavily uh, on you. Um, are you okay right now? Like, uh, I can only imagine, Michaelo, the stress that comes from this, um, the pressure that is on on you. Can you, can you help me understand... I'm hoping to create a little peace of mind for you in this conversation as well. Um, can you help me understand how you are Thank doing? You. And are, are you okay? Yeah, I'm. Yes, I mean I'm okay. Does you're absolutely right? It's not easy, and emotionally, it's it is a challenge to uh, you know to live in a state of war, especially in the, in the first days. Um, I think I've I've already gone through the initial stage of you know. Uh, whatever it, whatever it is called, um, and right now I am uh, you know determined, uh, relatively calm, uh, focused on helping uh, Ukraine and Ukrainian army, and uh, uh, you know organizing a lot of volunteer help, helping each other. I mean the the amount of uh, resources, information, connections, all the things that that, that go through pretty much every Ukrainian citizen right now. Uh, that is, I mean, everybody's involved in helping um, to defend the country, even if it's not uh, directly, you know, with the arms uh, in their hands, but, uh, you know, contributing, providing volunteer help, uh, whatever that is. It's, it's, it's insane how, how people are getting organized and how everybody is uh, from where they are helping, uh, helping Ukraine to defend itself. Uh, it must be confusing, and uh, here you are with a you know uh, judicial reform title in your in your job, and and then of course right. you know you're still uh, just a citizen, and at the same time deeply uh, woven in your blood would be uh, Ukraine, 
And is it is it confusing at times or does this nature kick in for you in times like this when you could be like you shared with us on a list of people that Russia doesn't want around? Um, what comes natural in a moment like that? Is it the Ukraine part? Uh, I don't think they're contradictory. It is. I mean, I have been I've been a lawyer in Ukraine, a practicing lawyer, I have been a judge for three years. Then I moved to be a part of civil society and we created our own thing, an act tank to, you know, to, 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 do, to deal with judicial reform issues. Uh, now, uh, you know, judicial reform is not a priority for the country. Uh, Dependent the country is a priority. But, uh, it, you know, the, 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 the nature of work we're doing right now, of course, it's shifted to help uh, Ukraine organized the defense, but it's not, I mean, again, it's definitely not contradictory. Whatever I did in my life, uh, I mean, most of the things professionally are basically connected to state building and creating uh, resilient and strong institutions and basically helping Ukraine thrive. Uh, so that's, I mean, it's it's the same thing, but it's, it's a different focus. And, you know, keeping that focus is... Uh, is extremely important right now. That's what, what gives you uh, sort of uh, a sense of uh, um, belonging, a sense of uh, uh, getting things and, and keeping things under control, and a sense of actually we will win and we will fight back and we will prevail. That's, that's what it's about. Well, I, I hear that. I think that what you've just taught me, Michaela, is that um, – you know, that is, you're fighting for the same thing regardless, um, all the time, although it, it's very different today than it was a few weeks ago. Um, you know, that, that's really where, where the stand lies. I admire that. That, that's really, really quite interesting, uh, to take that perspective that, um, and maybe naive of me to Thank think you. that Thank you've, you've been fighting for that all along. I think I see that now. I didn't, that didn't occur to me before. And, uh, and what an amazing perspective. For you to share now respecting michaelo obviously the privacy that you've asked for in regards to location and stuff like that um i'm assuming there are family members uh, around you and so if you want to speak to someone else's family versus yours for privacy that's fine but can you help me understand what it's like with the the parents the moms the dads the kids are do people you know are is are people leaving to go to poland and other places and then the men staying what are you seeing well, I see different things. Obviously, it depends largely now uh, on how, uh, you know, where you are, uh, what, what's the situation with the traffic, what's the security situation, is there fighting, is there Russian uh, tanks uh, in the area, is, is, what is there? So some, okay, the situation, of course, is um, uh, uh, more difficult in some of the areas, to say the least. You know, some of the territories already, like more ter- territories right now, uh, are occupied by by the Russians, uh, and I mean some. Uh, um, yeah, it's it, it is difficult generally, and it is difficult. Uh, for, it's more definitely more difficult for some parts of Ukraine, especially in the in the south. Uh, but uh, so far, we you know we, we didn't surrender. Uh, uh, basically, we didn't surrender any major city, um, and. Uh, and it's it's a, it's a, it's amazing how you know how how the country is fighting back and how it actually opposes um, one of the strongest armies in the uh, you know in, in in the world and 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 they cannot do much about it. But of course, there there's still uh, you know uh, there's still times uh, in a sense they they have more people, they have more vehicles, they have more aircraft, they have times more of these things and. Uh, we definitely need the support of the international community. We need more support. We, we, we got a lot of support from Canada, from the U.S., and, and of course, we're very grateful for that. But uh, we, 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 do, we do need more support from NATO. We do need more support. I mean, closing the airspace is the priority right now because there's a lot of, there's a lot of damage from the uh, Russian bombs, and they, they haven't even unfolded their whole potential there. Uh, they, they strike in, uh, you know, uh, already residential areas with the missiles, they are they're bombing the cities, uh, but I, I guess there more, more bombings are coming, and that's that's what uh, is uh, not good at all. And uh, I mean, the whole world, I think the whole world by now saw that uh, the Ukrainians are successfully fighting back, uh, and the, the Ukrainians are not only fighting for their lives. The, the Ukrainians right now are basically fighting for their world order and democracy, and uh, 
security of everybody around the world or, or, the, or the free world. And uh, we, we really need, uh, you know, we, we really need the support of the free world. And at the same time, you know, the, the major, some of the major uh, countries in, uh, in the world, such as Germany, uh, are, are not supporting, uh, you know, uh, sovereign Russia off SWIFT or some other sanctions because they are, they might be not in their interest or some other bullshit, I'm sorry, for, um, you know, for, 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 okay. for the language. But, no uh, problem. Yeah, but I can't really, well, yeah, but I can't really, you know, name it, name it any other way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't. Um, I appreciate that, and I don't want you to apologize because uh, I hear the passion in what you're saying, and I can hear that you've inspired me, Michaelo. And uh, with that, I, I'm hoping that in the, with this last question for you, that I, I'm hoping to shine a mirror on how powerful you are uh, in this conversation to shine that back to you. So let me try this. You've been fighting, whether it was as a judge or in judicial reform, uh, now as a citizen with everything that's going on uh, in Ukraine. You've been fighting for the same thing. You taught me that today. And tell me what Michaelo's dream of Ukraine looks like. What What is it? What does Ukraine for Michaelo look like that you are going to get this to work out to become? Can you try to describe that for me? Yes, I can. Uh, and I, I don't think my dream is very different from... Uh... Um, the dream of uh, pretty much every Ukrainian, uh, where Ukraine is strong, where Ukraine is democratic, when Ukraine uh, has strong institutions, when Ukraine has strong friends internationally, uh, the uh, you know our geopolitical course. It's, we, we've we also fought back, um, you know, uh, several years ago on Maidan during the Revolution of Dignity on the Central Square of Kiev. Uh, those are the same people that you know went against the snipers with just sticks and stones, literally, uh, and, and won. Just, just for you to understand how passionate we are about these things, being free, being democratic, being not with Russia, being not with autocrats and murderers and killers, but being with the free world right now. We successfully, we've successfully defended that in eight years of war with Russia in the East. Uh, now we're doing that along, I mean, throughout the country and, uh, um, and, and definitely we will prevail, but let me, let me stress it again, um, to do that, we, we, we need all sorts of international support and we really, uh, hope that, you know, the West will organize itself to, uh, support us and to really make Ukraine, um, win, really make Ukraine, um, uh, survive and, uh, then, of course, uh, Ukraine will uh, help the rest of the world, and it is helping the rest of the world right now by just showing how uh, actually futile and how um, Russia is really not so strong and scary and how uh, we, if united, can uh, stand against it and prevail. Uh, Mikhailo Zernikov uh, is in western Ukraine. And Michaelo, I was, uh, I've learned so much, man, from your countrymen, including this statement. And I think I also learned what this means. Uh, the word freedom. I think I've learned what the word, uh, freedom means, uh, today. And freedom is our religion. Uh, we are certainly taking from this conversation with your country. And Michaelo, I wish you safety and all the best. And, um, your hard work Thank you very much, is Thank inspiring you. for me. Thank you for being here. Thank, thank you. Thanks for having me. This is the Shift Podcast. Our next guest is Katie Prescott. Katie is a business correspondent in the UK who's been watching Russian sanctions and the impact uh, from there. Uh, Katie, thanks for joining me here on the program. Good morning from London, Shane. How are you? I'm I'm good, thank you very much. You are a lot closer to this than we are. We um we had done some math, Katie, from what is the difference. In, in, say, if you had to drive from London, where you are, to Kiev right. versus yeah. uh, Canada, because Canada is so big, right? Um, yeah. And I know you have some family that's, that's close by uh, here. So the, you're much closer than we are. For example, Vancouver to Manitoba uh, to Winnipeg is roughly the distance, and you're not even halfway across Canada yet, and you're closer. Um, the, what's the look on what's going on in Ukraine? 
Because I know there's been a lot of commentary that has said Britain needs to do more. I'd say people are quite jumpy here. So one of the stories I've been covering for the BBC this morning is about British Airways cancelling all their flights. Now, they're actually having systems problems. But the first thing that people were talking about on Twitter is, is this cyber attack? Right. So that just shows really like how, how jumpy people and, and businesses are about what's going on in Ukraine. The, the British economy and the Ukrainian econ- and, and Russian economy aren't that closely tied. I think like 1% of, of UK trade is done with Russia. But there are some really important things that come out of Russia and the, the, the Ukraine, um, particularly energy, that do affect the UK. Um, and so there's a lot of nervousness here, I think, about, um, you know, and I'm just talking about this in a business sense at the moment, about what might happen with things that come out of the Russian economy that can affect the UK. And, and there are other things apart from energy. I mean, we do think of Russia and oil and gas, but there's also wheat. It's a massive, I think it produces a third of the world's wheat, Russia and Ukraine together. Um, yeah. Fertilizer. A huge issue and and then also metals so there are there are i think businesses watching what's going on as i say even though trade isn't that close despite the physical proximity they just talked about there, there are lots of things um that you know that, that this conflict could cause a major amount of disruption to now that british airways story which i think everyone gets a little bit jumpy on that because of the fact that russia banned british airways from its airspace uh because I believe it was Aeroflot was banned out of England. So the tit for tat in business has certainly begun. Yes, exactly. I mean, I would say, you know, the British Airways thing today, as I said, they they say it's got nothing to do with Russia, but there there is concern, you know, how is Russia going to respond to the sanctions that um, the UK government put on it last week? And, you know, along with with the US and, and with the EU, this is all about trying to isolate Russia's economy, really, really to squeeze it um to make you know to make funding the war uh as difficult as possible even if we're not going to put boots on the ground and the other thing that's quite interesting from a london point of view is the number of russian oligarchs who live here so these are the the billionaires who made vast sums of money after the fall of the soviet union who were very economically important within russia very close to the kremlin and often have houses assets families send their kids to school in the UK and so they are another big target of the UK government we haven't seen sanctions on that many of them yet but certainly there's a sense that you know the the UK government's kind of looking at who the really big important Russians are politically in London and how they can also put pressure on them as well. Our guest is Katie Prescott. She's with the BBC in the UK. Now, Katie, when you look around your family, your friends and and the circle of conversation, maybe even around the water cooler at the BBC, um, is this the story that everybody's that everybody's talking about? What it, what is the look that, you know, you, you and your family take on this and and uh, and and in watching it? Because I know that in my house, when my kids come in and out, it's the first question they ask. They say, Dad, what what's happened? What's new? Yeah, people are horrified. I've got a four-year-old and a a seven-year-old, and I was trying to explain this to them yesterday um, in very simple terms. Well, you know, um, (laughs) someone's invaded someone else's country. Um, It's really hard. And I think there's a sense that this has been building for ages, that we've all been watching it in the news. And, you know, you've probably had the same with where where you are. You know, this is something that's been escalating, escalating. But I still think it took everyone's breath away when it actually happened. And certainly waking up for me, you know, four hours after it after it had all kicked off in Russia, um, it, it was a real shock. And we've been speculating as well as business journalists, you know, what this could mean for things like the price of gas, which is a massive issue here in the UK. The cost of living is absolutely soaring. We're expecting inflation, so the rate, rate of price rises to be like 7%. Gas bills have gone up 50%. So that like people are really hurting in terms of energy. So this is another sort of, you know, string to that as well. I think those are the two points I'd make. People are horrified by what's happening in Ukraine to the Ukrainian people. And people are also really, really, really fearful about um, what it does to, you know, to their bills at home. What is the cost of gasoline right now in England? It is approaching £1.50 a litre. Now, I'm not sure how to translate that. I, I need a currency converter. Yeah, um, I'm going to Google I'm it real quick while you keep talking. Up. 
but but um you know we've seen the price of oil obviously go above a hundred dollars a barrel and yeah as i said gas prices go up 50 percent. so there is this sort of like on, so yeah dollar seventy dollar seventy one canadian thanks to dr is google that high, is that high for you guys that's I don't, I mean, it, well you know what it isn't it isn't if you're on the west coast uh in canada i mean they're starting to tickle towards in toronto they're starting to tickle towards that dollar seventy dollar eighty a dollar ninety where i am in calgary we're about a buck forty five buck fifty buck fifty five uh with that so you know, depending on where you are in Canada, yeah, you we're pretty much in the same same place. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Abbotsford, uh, my technical producer is in Vancouver, and he just said it's a dollar eighty in his neighborhood in Abbotsford outside Vancouver. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it, it, and it and it does, as you say, all feel very close. I mean, I've been to Moscow many times before with the BBC. Um, it's a it's a short flight from here and it just it it just feels absolutely extraordinary that that Mm -hmm. people in the ukraine are being handed guns to fight um to fight the russian army i mean it's just yeah i think everyone here is really struggling to get their heads around it and certainly the bbc newsroom has just been a a huge amount of shock and disbelief well i want to acknowledge the work that the bbc has done Uh, you can see your colleagues and say shane hewitt from the shift radio show in canada is uh really appreciates the work because i've watched the bbc more in the last uh couple of weeks here than i ever have and i do appreciate the hard work as well as you being so generous with your time to be here katie i appreciate it no well thank you very much for taking the time um and it's, it's lovely to hear the view from canada thanks for listening to the shift podcast make sure you subscribe rate and review the show and share with anyone you like Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.